0: to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news, to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Welcome to episode 26 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. This week I'm going to be talking to a unbelievably knowledgeable ex-colleague, Lee Warmby who retired three months ago as a uh, Chief Superintendent in the West Midlands Police. Lee's led an incredibly varied and full career, and uh, what he doesn't know about certain areas of policing, particularly around covert policing, uh, just isn't worth knowing. But the reason I asked uh, Lee to come on to the podcast was to talk to us all about Disaster Victim Identification, DVI, which is the police response to large numbers of fatalities in any sort of major incident, whether that's at home or abroad. Uh, And Lee was the regional coordinator for DVI for the West Midlands region and one of the most knowledgeable people in the UK. So I'm really looking forward to hearing all about that. So before I move into the interview, just uh, as I usually do, just one or two bits and bobs around uh, the book. Uh, the reviews are continuing to come in, which is great. Uh, so if you're listening to this and you've read the book, Tango Juliet Foxtrot, uh, or you've, uh, you're have you in the middle of reading it, uh, be really, really grateful if you could rate and review um, on Amazon Is the only sort of platform, I think, that really allows you to do that. So that would be great. Um, just read one that came in yesterday from, this is a very formal sounding, that's from something out of, the 1930s or something, Mr. R.D.M. Kirby. Uh, five stars. Uh, an honest book is the title. Uh, it's quite a long review, but I'll I'll read it because it's, uh, it's quite interesting. Ian Donnelly has written a very hard-hitting expose of the past 30 years of British policing. Is it justified? As someone who served in the Metropolitan Police in the era prior to Donnelly's career, ooh, Donnelly, um, I can empirically say yes, it is. How did this lamentable state of affairs come about? Donnelly tells us, and the reasons are many and varied. Theresa May, first as Home Secretary, then as Prime Minister, aided and abetted by Sir Tom Windsor, brought morale in the police to an all-time low, not least by shutting down and selling off police stations and courts. The 1999 McPherson Report, which irrationally branded the police as being institutionally racist, resulted in officers being too frightened to carry out their duties in respect of ethnic minorities for fear of being branded racist and believing, quite correctly, that the senior officers would also be too frightened to support them. Senior officers permitted themselves to become politicised and stop and search became a political tennis match. Don't stop. Do stop. No, don't stop. And there is a compelling case that because of these uncertainties, they have resulted in many more young black men being stabbed and shot by other young black men. The current notion of demanding that only graduates join the police is exposed as being ludicrous and self-defeating. The author himself, a graduate, describes quite correctly that the products of universities who join the police do tend to over-intellectualize matters and there's no substitute for experience and common sense. Donnelly writes comprehensively and with utter accuracy The sexual exploitation of young girls and how everyone in authority was too terrified to act because the vast majority of the perpetrators of these offences were asian much of the fault in the police lies with the accelerated promotion of inexperienced officers and flitting from one department to another in fact the author accepts that this happened to him after 14 years service without any experience of investigative matters he accepted the post of detective sergeant and is honest enough to admit to being totally out of his depth and within a year, he reverted to uniform duties. This is an honest book. And for those who wish to know if the job is fucked, look no further. So, uh, Mr. R.D.M. Kirby, um, thank you very much indeed. That's a very helpful and um, comprehensive review and um, hopefully helpful to anybody who wants to know what the book's all about. Um only one little point I probably would uh, take issue with in that was that uh, after 14 years' service without any experience of investigative matters, he accepted the post of sex text sergeant and is honest enough to admit being totally out of his depth. I think the truth is that I accepted the post of a DS in CID, uh, which is completely different to being... Uh, so I had been an investigator for many years, um, albeit in counterterrorism. So um, there is absolutely no or very little um, sort of common ground between investigating and gathering intelligence on terrorist conspiracies and doing what I was trying and very unsuccessfully at the time to do, which was to investigate very heavy numbers, large numbers of what you would describe as volume crimes, so burglaries, robberies, um, all of that kind of stuff, um, yes, I definitely was out of my depth and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So, so yeah, so it's a good point that he makes, though, that um, we're now seeing this ridiculous scenario of people coming into the organisation, direct entry as detectives, having had no police experience of any sort whatsoever. And simultaneously, we've got large numbers of people leaving detective roles completely stressed out and burnt out. And those, are, and those are experienced police officers who are doing that. So God only knows how direct entry detectives are going to fare. One or two other bits and bobs that's just maybe worth touching on. Um, last week I was interviewed, was it last week? Yeah, I think it was last week. Last week I was interviewed by the Belfast Telegraph. So that is the newspaper, sort of the main newspaper in Northern Ireland um, and being sort of from that neck of the woods myself they wanted to have a chat with me about the book and it was a really nice interview actually a girl called claire was, was on the phone with her for about an hour and a half talking about all sorts of things and the article was actually published in the belfast telegraph um on monday this week uh, my my heart did slightly sink when i saw the article for two reasons One is that uh, the main headline was um, featuring a sort of a bit of a throwaway comment that took up about 20 seconds of the interview out of an hour and a half. Uh, And the main headline is, the IRA were the enemy, but I respected them, and I think they felt the same way about me. So there's two things I'd say about that, was that it was just a bit of a throwaway comment talking about uh, the fact that in Special Branch in London, you know, when we were dealing with the provisional IRA in the mainland campaign, we did we did respect them. That doesn't necessarily mean that we liked what they were doing. Obviously, uh, they were very much uh, the enemy as far as we were concerned. But I think we would have been foolish or anyone would have been foolish if they hadn't at least respected um, their kind of determination and their technical abilities in, in many ways. Um, so, yeah, it was slightly odd that um, they latched on to that and turned that into the headline. And then there was a big, massive photograph of IRA uh, volunteers in full par- paramilitary gear with, um, you know, automatic rifles. Um, so yeah, I suppose the learning there is that uh, yeah, journalists will print what they want to print, won't they? But I've got to say the article, um, in broad terms, was was very positive and uh, very very nice article. Really, it was just a slightly odd choice of headline. Uh, the other point I'd make is is that um, I'm sure the R.I. didn't think one thing about me personally. Uh, I think they probably would have had a certain amount of respect for the security services and the police, but um, I don't suppose for one moment they give the slightest thought to Ian Donnelly. Yeah, and I was also interviewed on two other people's podcasts t- uh, this week, which uh, was a very strange experience. Um, Yeah, so I was interviewed by a chap called Hugh Keir, who's got a podcast called H-Hour. And Hugh is an uh, ex-parachute regiment sniper uh, who is involved in uh, lots of um, action in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, He's got his own podcast now, which has been going for quite a long time now. He's about 200-odd episodes into it. Um, So he interviewed me on uh, Monday, which was really, really nice. I really enjoyed it. It was It was interesting, actually, when I was giving him some of the statistics around what a disaster, uh, what a public safety disaster this government have been for policing. Um, You know, he just couldn't, he nearly fell off his chair when I told him that 94% of total recorded crime to police now doesn't result in anyone being either identified or brought to justice. So only 6% of total recorded crime now results in someone actually being held accountable which uh, is a pretty shockingly bad statistic by any definition and some of the increases I described in sort of murders yeah I think it was uh, it was interesting just seeing his reaction so I think he wants to get me back on at some point to talk about um, various I think it's sort of we covered quite a lot of ground, but I think um, it sort of just wet his appetite, really, I suppose. Uh, the other podcast I was interviewed on was yesterday. Um, that was by a chap called Jim Nixon, who's got a podcast called the Community Safety Podcast, which is another very popular one. Um, and Jim is also an ex-police officer from the West Midlands. So that was nice. And, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. But it felt very odd being on the other side of the desk, so to speak. Right. Okay, let's get into the interview with Lee Warmby. So this week, everybody, I've got the um, pleasure of speaking to an old uh, friend and colleague uh, from the Westminster Police, Lee Warmby. Uh, Lee, uh, as well as being a thoroughly, thoroughly nice guy, he's also super, super experienced as a police officer um, and went uh, to the rank of chief superintendent where he retired a few months ago. So Lee, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thanks for having me, Lee. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, no, it's great to have you here. Um, so just to kind of, so people understand our sort of history, I suppose. So we worked together uh, in the latter part of my career in force intelligence and you were a detective superintendent and later a detective chief superintendent. Um, and, and I was a chief inspector and later a superintendent um, doing various things. So just give us a bit of a, a sort of an overview of your basic career. Um, you know, when you joined,
1: kind of what motivated you to join in the first place? Right. Um, so I joined in February of 92, Um join Westmoreland's police. So at the time I was living in Nottingham, I was Nottingham born and Bred, uh, worked at, at Boots in Nottingham, which it, I don't know if you know the area, but if you lived in Nottingham, you either worked at Boots, um, Raleigh or John Player, yeah. one of the three. And I was at Boots. Uh, generations of my family went there before me. Um, so it was just around the corner, walked to work every day and started there at 16. So worked at Boots and, and never really considered the police, didn't know anybody who was in the police Um was it was a brand new thing for me but but i suppose the first sort of inkling that that might be something i wanted to do was working with my wife at boots my then my future wife should i say so we met at boots and uh, she started to progress the application process with lincolnshire police so we're boyfriend girlfriend at that time a fairly new relationship and she went through the process which took about 12 months and we, we sort of stayed together and then she was successful and went off to, to Lincolnshire and worked at Gainsborough. So we, we maintained a relationship. And the more she spoke about the job, the more I got interested in the role. It was just sounded so exciting, so interesting. You know, when I compared mm-hmm. to the job I was doing at Boots, which I really enjoyed, but of course it's nothing to compare with the life that she was leading up in, up in Lincolnshire. So that was really where my first interest was, was triggered. And Lincolnshire being, I think, if it's not the smallest, it was one of the smallest forces in the country. They just weren't recruiting. So um, I I couldn't get into Lincolnshire, applied for several of the forces, and West Mids, being one of the larger forces, was the first one to respond. So that was it, really. I started the process um, sort of latter end of of 91, and then was successful. So uh, joined in, in sort of February of 92 right
0: so you had no kind of family links to birmingham or the west midlands at all or it was just because of that was just the uh, you know they they just were recruiting and that was the opportunity for you i suppose
1: yeah definitely it was it was quite odd really i, I can remember to this day driving along the a38 so those who know birmingham you drive along the a38 down the expressway a sort of 10 lane um carriageway mm-hmm. and driving into birmingham thinking wow this this city just looks huge you know, coming from Nottingham and not spending a vast amount of time in the city centre, except for social events and stuff. But driving into Birmingham, I've just seen this all spread out before me. I mean, you ex-Met, so it's probably very, you know, yeah. like that, tiny to you.
0: But Although saying that, I, I went to university in Birmingham in the 80s. Um, so uh, I remember it very well. I mean, obviously a little bit before your time joining the job, I suppose. But um, it was... Pretty certainly, when I was there, I was in university in '84 and '88, and in those days it was pretty grim, as I recall. I mean, was it was it kind of like that when you joined the the West Midlands?
1: Please, it was it was just concrete blocks everywhere. You know, and that's mm. that was my first impression of it. And I was sort of driving there, thinking, "Wow, what have I done? Is this the right thing to do?" You know, didn't really never been to Birmingham before. That was my first ever time. You know, going there for the application process, and then the sort of second time I drove there was to pick up the keys to my my flat which was you know in a police station in in Solihull, so yeah it was it was very intimidating actually for me as a young sort of 19 12, sorry 20 year old um but uh, you know that said once once you get settled down with any new area you know you, you sort of you roll the yep. punches and absolutely love my time there and um I've never looked back to be and honest. And did
0: you go to do your training at Tally Ho then?
1: No, so, well, the initial training, so the fourth training we did at Tallyho, didn't we? So we had the sort of first, you know, couple of weeks there, and then you went off to Wrighton, and I did... Oh, of uh, course,
0: Wrighton, wasn't
1: it? Ten weeks at Wrighton, then five weeks on Division, and then five weeks back at Wrighton, which they call Mod 4, um, and then you, you're on your two-to-phase back out at um, at Division. So, but loved it, yeah, loved, loved training, it's got a great time there, fantastic people, great bunch, you know, just absolutely loved my time there. And, of course, my wife had... had um, she was at writing also obviously two or three years before me so I knew what it was all about she's sort of you know spoken about the, the sort of social side and yeah. and some of the, the sort of coursework and stuff that was really helpful to be honest uh, but no I loved it yeah I love writing.
0: And your first posting was to where then?
1: So very first posting was Solihull so you know that could have been Timbuk too so I remember right. driving to Lloyd House which is Westminster Police Headquarters and they said Right, you know, Lee, welcome to the force. Uh, You're going to be working out of Solihull. That's going to be your first parade station. And you're actually going to be living there. So they appointed me um, a a small room above the police station. It was about, I think, about 40 flats, something like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I was given room 19 at Solihull Police Station. And I stayed there for for three and a half years. So my commute to work was very short (laughs) those first Mm -hmm. 18 months or so.
0: So Solihull, for the people who who are listening, who have no idea what Solihull is or where it is or anything. It's sort of a, a fairly affluent suburb on the sort of south east of Birmingham, isn't it? And um, but it's a it's a mixed, quite a mixed ground, isn't it? Because you've got Solihull, which is quite sort of leafy and affluent, but you've also got Chelmsley Wood, which is sort of bordering on to East Birmingham, which is quite busy and uh, quite um, deprived as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So very much. Um... Two different areas, to be honest, in terms of sort of communities, I would say uh, you described it quite well. So yeah, there's, there's the A45 that splits the two towards the sort of north of the borough. Um, and at that time, though, if you remember, they were both separated. So L1 was Solihull, L2 was challenging woods So Lima One and Lima Two, they were two separate divisions, or sorry, subdivisions. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. You know, I had a good start there, and and you know, settled down. Had a good unit around me. Um,
0: what are your memories of policing in those days? I mean, I suppose it's, things have changed so much, haven't they? But, you know, what are your kind of recollections of what do you think was the biggest difference about policing back in those days compared to today?
1: I think the biggest thing, you know, you were everything. So you, you were you're an investigator, you you were a, a frontline cop, um, you had a dog handle on your team, the traffic team was working alongside you. So my unit, which was D-unit, was, was was quite large. I mean, in terms of West Midlands police, it would have been quite a small unit because the, the bigger obviously shifts were sitting in areas like Birmingham, Coventry, Wolverhampton. Solihull would have had one of the smaller teams, but I, I can recall it being about 40 strong, you know, in terms of that broader team that existed there. And um you know, just just great camaraderie. And I, I think we're in that position now. So if you look at the sort of so that was a very much a, a localized model where the police station at Solihull dealt with everything. All the crime that went through um, Solihull was dealt with through that, either the CID team or the team I've just described. I think now we're in this period where we're in a very much a, a sort of centralized model, which you tend to introduce when you're looking to save money. And you right. know, it has its benefits. It has its drawbacks. The centralized model. I personally prefer the localised model only because Mm. it's, you know, that sense of responsibility, accountability, ownership, all those things that sit with being in charge of your own destiny, I suppose, in that small geographical area. But I do understand why at the moment we're in a centralised model, Mm. you know, to save money. That's obviously the way that we need to go. And there'll be bits from that model, I'm sure, that will be replicated in in, in future. But uh, I'm convinced that at some point we'll go back to a localised model
0: yeah well certainly um we'll come on later on to talk about get your thoughts about you know policing at the moment and kind of you know some of the issues um I'd be really interested in what you think about all of that but um yeah so sticking with you and your career then um uh where did you go after your early days in solihull
1: yeah so um i was fortunate really there was a, there was a, a job which happened which sort of I suppose, elevated me as an individual into a, uh, into CRD, which I've never really thought about at that point, but I was sort of just a uniform cop on nights, so and we've been getting played with vehicle crime, uh, you know, 20, 30 fences overnight, you know, continually day after day, and and it was becoming a real issue. Uh, and I was just lucky enough, one of those sort of moments in your career where you're in the right place at the right time, when a call comes in, I'm on my own out in a panda on nights, about three in the morning, Uh, lads breaking into a a motor I was literally the next street down so got there and literally found committing so got a couple in the car Uh, one of the made off was caught shortly after but that they were the three lads who had been committing these offences night after night for for months on end and um, they went on to admit hundreds of offences back in the day as you can recall you were like the
0: blue-eyed boy then
1: it was one of those. Where I, was, I literally mm-hmm. it was the right place, right time. I'd never profess to be the best cop in the world, but I was right place, right time. And and after that, I was sort of asked to go into a vehicle squad, and that then translated into mm-hmm. why don't you apply to become a detective? Mm-hmm. So after about two and a half years, I was seconded into a CID department, and then I'd done this. I'd done my um, detective course after mm-hmm. about four years, and also at the same time, I. would passed my sergeant's exam so by sort of four years service I was an accredited detective and qualified as a sergeant so um in some ways things happen quite quickly from there and, and I've often said to to people you know if I look back I probably got promoted to sergeant too early because mm. there was things I'd like to have done you know I'd like to have done different things particularly in the CRD world and you know that was sort of investigating homicides and you yeah. know in local CRD all the other stuff that you would do as a, as a young detective I think I'd like to have progressed along that line a little bit further but um but as it was so you know got through my detective course um I was doing a bit of acting, DSing uh, mm. when the promotion boards came out. So I've been an an ADS for about six months. Um, took a promotion board, was successful, and then was posted to Coventry. So I went over to Coventry um, in about '96, I think it was. As a DS? Uh, no, no. So uh, as a uniform I acting, sergeant, I was acting DS at Chelmsley, and then went over to um, to Coventry as a sergeant, substantive sergeant. So all right, yeah. yeah. So it was uh, very different to Solomon.
0: Yeah, well, we both worked in Coventry then because I, I I transferred up from the Met in 2002, so a little bit later on. But uh, but yeah, I I worked that was Coventry was my first posting as a newly promoted uniform sergeant, albeit you know I'd come up from the Met, whereas you'd sort of were in house, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed
1: working in Coventry. How did you find Coventry? Yeah, again, really enjoyed it. Fantastic place to work. Very busy. Yeah. Um, I found it quite a violent place. It's one of those places where you know I don't know if you found it the same. Yeah, definitely. Particularly yeah, particularly a custody side. You could be guaranteed that you'd be you'd be fighting or rolling around every night in the cell blocks, and yeah, just one of those places. I don't. Well, know I talk
0: that. about that in my book, where um, you know I'd come up from London, um, where it was really different dealing with people, dealing with our usual customers uh, out in the street in London was very different to Coventry so in London no one would ever tell you their real name they would always try and have you over giving you false names or either because they were wanted or they just didn't want to tell you the name or whatever Um, but they used to generally speaking come quietly um, or you know there wasn't I don't recall constantly having punch-ups whereas in Coventry everyone wanted to have a (laughs) punch-up It was like it was just. It was just like uh, it was like a sport, wasn't it? It's like when the when the police stopped you, and particularly if they wanted to lock you up for something, that was it. Was all going to kick off, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, I agree entirely. Whether it was a night out, whether it's domestic incident, whatever, you're always pretty much guaranteed a fight. Um, <laughs> I think the policing culture was slightly different, and you know, people who know the area, sort of Coventry you know previously sort of part of the warwickshire side of business wasn't it i think and and Mm. back in the day and and i think they're sort of on the edge of Midlands police and always saw themselves as as coventry police there was this sort of culture that existed there that they saw themselves as in their own sort of entity at that time and um so there's a little bit of that but i really enjoyed it i had a fantastic time over there um i was there for about three or four years actually um doing bits of, i oh, sorry, it's about two and a half, two and a half years, I think, in the end, I did at calf. I think the one thing, the one thing I learned, certainly, uh, in a bit on promotion, I suppose, the, the biggest lesson I learned was, when I got there, I thought, right, I'm a sergeant now, I need to be something different, I need to be mm. this sort of, disciplinarian, and sort of, you know, bang my fist against the table, on a regular basis, and mm. I think I tried to, Change my whole whole leadership style, if you like, as you mm. know, as a manager, supervisor, whatever you want to call it, and it didn't really work. I think I got found out a couple of times, and, and I learned a lot from that. That you know, the, the best thing to do is just be yourself and, and just yeah. be the person that you are. That's what's got you promoted. That's what yeah. got you in that position yeah. in the first place. But I probably, definitely,
0: just, I, I know exactly I mean, what you mean because I, I think I think I made the mistake same mistake as well. Whenever I first became a sergeant albeit I had a lot more service so I had nearly 14 years by the time I got promoted because I was just I was an investigator down in London I was on special branch for a long time I was on surveillance teams and things like that um so <coughs> but when I excuse me just coughing here um when I uh, I remember Clive Burgess was my was my superintendent at the time in Coventry and he's I've interviewed him earlier on on an earlier episode on the podcast and um and then I was an inspector um, with him later on uh, in Stetchford in East Birmingham. I remember him saying to me, um, uh, "In those back in those days, the thing is, Ian, if if I want something doing you know, I know it's going to get done, I'll give it to you. But the problem is, you cause some, and he used the words collateral damage. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> in other words, you end up pissing people off sometimes. Yeah. You know what I mean?" Yeah. And you, and, I, and I definitely mellowed as I kind of matured in experience and gained more experience. I think you're you're absolutely right, but you know it's uh, it's very difficult, isn't it, when you first take on that uh, leadership role um, to just find the right balance.
1: Sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, um, I think you you, you probably have this ideal in your head about what a good sergeant looks like. And you might have that from watching other people, you know, and I think I probably did look at other people around me and maybe thought that's what I need to be like, instead of just thinking, just, just, just be yourself. I think it's really hard to pretend to be somebody you're not. Particularly for a long period of time, it's so much easier to be yourself, isn't it? You enjoy it a lot more. People know where they stand with you as a, as a leader, supervisor, manager. So, once I sort of overcome that and realise, look, be comfortable in your own skin. Just, just do the job as you see it should be done. Mm. It was so much easier, mate, and I, and I really enjoyed the yeah. timing of. Um, I did leave. I, I mean, I left Covent and only not nothing because of the area. I just, I just wanted to get back into Birmingham, back in mm. a bit centralised, and ended up uh, doing a swap with a, a, a sort of sergeant who worked in Birmingham who wanted to come back to Coventry. Yeah. Um, so we at Bell, Dinga So uh, well we, right ended, we ended up doing a swap, and I went to Spark Hill, um, you right. know, an and worked out there on, on a neighbourhood team initially, and mm. uh, that was sort of. Probably late ninety nine mm-hmm. um again, fantastic love working around there, brilliant completely different sort of setup is as, as what I had in Coventry um on a neighbor team over there and and enjoyed that immensely um and then got back into c i d so um applied for some local roles that had come up. there was a couple of reasons why vacancies had appeared, and um pretty good timing again for me. Got a job on uh, on CID, so went back into CID as a DS, and on mm. day one, uh, well, I was meant to start at Green on the Monday morning. Uh, when I turned up, away, I was deployed to a, a homicide mm. over in Ladywood, and I was there for six months um, on that job. So that was that was a sort of a bit of a baptism of fire straight into that, and sort of mm. you know dealt with a murder investigation, uh, a couple, in fact, over at Ladywood, and uh, mm. it ended up going to Holland actually on that inquiry, which was. Really interesting. I don't know yeah. if you've ever been.
0: Have right. you ever been to Holland on a? Not, not, yes. not, not, not with work. No, not with.
1: Police. Yeah, yeah. It was a just an interesting period, really. So it was basically a, a chap, had, um, uh, a, a, a local drug dealer, who was a bit of a bully, really. He robbed other drug dealers, was his mm. thing. He was owed um, a, a small amount of money, not a huge amount of money, and ended up uh, killing um, a young guy. Um, for this debt, ended up shooting him in the head really with, a, with an abattoir gun. And then he burned the body on a bonfire in, right. um, back in the back end of Spark Hill. And he went out literally the same day to cut a flight um, to Holland, went over to Holland, was there a couple of days, and, and he ended up um, committing an armed robbery in Holland right. where he pushed the, the unsuspecting shopkeeper down some stairs, paralyzed him from uh, the neck down. And was arrested in Holland, so started uh, a, a sort of lengthy prison sentence over there. They got in contact with us and and sort of said, "Look, he's here. If you want to come and interview him, you know we've got all the pins in place." The old commission rogatory remember the old com Yeah, yeah, yeah. So went across to Holland uh, with a couple of people and um, yeah, interviewed him in his prison cell, which was which was quite bizarre because their prisons are towel blocks. There, are, well, this one certainly was in the middle of Amsterdam. It was. Yeah. Um, it was a huge tower block. So you mm. sort of interviewed this guy who, when he left the UK was a sort of 18 stone bodybuilder. Mm. By the time I saw him, maybe nine months later, he was a shadowy former self, you know, skinny, uh, quiet you know well, he didn't say a word to me the whole time we sat there and, and you know yeah. interviewed him. he was just absolutely silent the whole way through but uh I eventually got charged and got life imprisonment in the UK and was so he came back to there. the UK Brilliant. came back yeah and served he's, he's still serving his time now
0: it's funny so. uh, I knew you were going to say Amsterdam because uh, Amsterdam uh, is just a bit of a, a bit of a it's like a northern European version of Marbella isn't it it's yeah, kind yeah. of like, it seems to be the gathering place for so many criminals, doesn't it, Um, yeah. in Northern Europe. And and nine times out of ten, if someone flees the UK um, to get away from, you know, the old bill, they either go to Amsterdam or they go to Marbella, don't they? Yeah. Um, I, I suppose it's
1: easy to hide, I suppose, and it just... He just got clumsy again, didn't he? You know, got yeah. caught for for another offence over there. And I think I think he couldn't wait to leave. To be honest, by the time he came back to the UK, I think he was um, definitely ready for it. It had a, it had his fill of Holland and the and the business <laughs> over
0: there. Yeah. So, so you obviously get yourself on the promotion trail then, um, uh, inspector, and then later chief inspector. So, if we just sort of fast forward um, to when you were a chief inspector, where did you go? did you? what did you, what? What were you doing at that? Because that's quite an interesting rank, isn't it, chief inspector? What sort of year were we talking about when you got got to that sort of rank?
1: Yeah, so um, chief inspector I was the chief. So I was, a, I was an inspector for about six or seven years. Uh, mm. Chief inspector came around two thousand and seven, um, and at that point, I, I, I'd sort of undertaken a few roles as an inspector. So from being what I thought was a sort of a career detective in the the early days of my career as a a DC and a sergeant, sort of skipped a little bit at at inspector level, didn't really Mm. spend much time within the CID world, to be honest, was in lots of different roles, but not necessarily CID. So when I got to the chief inspector rank, they could have put me anywhere because I'd become more of a generalist. And I ended Mm. up, uh, my first posting was as, the force incident manager which was a brand new role the oh
0: team. yeah I remember you as the fin yeah yeah I yeah a brand that. new
1: role and it was um, effectively you managing critical incidents for the force you're that sort of senior officer on duty 24-7 mm. uh, I remember getting the call to say that's the role I had and I, I thought great you know what have I done <laughs> who <I> uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it it late so as nights the chief inspector back on that role again <laughs> and uh, to be honest I really really enjoyed it and I learned loads i I got to see all of the force got to meet loads of people um you know built some good relationships actually across the force area at that point because you're managing inspectors generally 24 7 Mm. you probably saw more of the inspectors on a on a division than their own command teams did um Mm. so really good role really enjoyed and because it was the first time that role had been created we sort of had a bit of a blank template and I, Mm. i sort of took the lead in trying to set up some training programs and just to try and give us a, a bit of a, a model to work to in terms of what does a good FIM look like type of thing yeah, you know, of yeah. But
0: yeah I enjoyed that enjoyed I remember that. that I remember that whenever the FIM role was created and I remember you as as one of the FIMs you yeah, had forgotten that you did that job um yeah and of course by the time I left you know a few years ago it was a well established role wasn't it um and uh, an incredibly important role as well we're going to I just want to talk about you obviously go on to to you know greater things in terms of you know rank and everything but one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast um apart from just to catch up with you obviously which is great but I wanted to talk about your role uh as a specialist in one particular and very very niche area of policing and that's a uh, disaster victim identification, otherwise known as DVI, uh, and you were the regional coordinator, I believe, for DVI. Um, is that is that right? I mean, when did you get? When did you sort of first get into that that role?
1: Right. So I, uh, so DVI, disaster victim identification. Most people think it's something to do with domestic violence whenever you give the term DVI, but hmm. disaster victim identification. I first got into that around twenty ten. So I was working with a colleague who was very experienced in DVI, um, who sort of said to me, Look, we're looking for some um, more senior officers to be involved. We're looking for to train a role called the Senior Identification Manager, which is effectively like an SIO, but for the identification process. And I'll talk a bit about where that role came from. But um, Mm -hmm. to be a SIM, to be a senior identification manager, had to be an experienced SIO. You had to uh, be at least of a rank of chief inspector, right? Um, So I did that course in 2010.
0: Um, Is that that a national course then? Is it the
1: national course undertaken by the College of Policing? Yeah, I did one in one Boston. These days they're doing in in hotels and other places, but effectively it's a um, a week's course, seven days course now. I think it is where you are given lots of front loading from specialists, so Mm. all those involved in the practicalities of a DVI recovery process the mortuary processes the coronial work um you have lots of case studies you work through in terms of things like thailand and mm. the tsunami of 2003 and that type of thing so it was um really interesting course but you leave there in you leave there thinking wow this is massive if i got the call for this on mm. any given day
0: yeah
1: you know, you'd be you'd be scrambling for your phone book to ring people who had experience so it's definitely a a, a sort of platform to start yeah. your your sort of experience in that world
0: so just to take a step back there just so people who are listening to this who've got absolutely no idea what we're talking about um when we talk about dvi so i'll I'll give you what i think is my understanding of what that is and you can tell me if i'm right or wrong so so that is the process whereby after any major incident which results in the deaths of potentially large numbers of people so it could be you know half a dozen people it could be. thousands of people, um, police officers, um, specialist police officer used to um, coordinate the recovery of bodies, storage, uh, identification, and potentially the repatriation of those bodies back to their families and managing the whole sort of legal process around
1: that. Is that kind of it? pretty much in i think you, you've nailed it so you obviously listened to some of those presentations back <laughs> in the day you know, it's good no it, it's exactly that so it's about mass fatalities generally although it doesn't have to be mass fatality incident you could have you know, for example, a a small house fire where you've got two or three victims who've been burned or commingled, and you need to be able to identify the individuals from within that fire. So it could be fairly small, but generally uh, mass fatality incidents, uh, and it's about recovery of the deceased and any fragmented remains and and sort of um, residual human tissue, and then identification of the deceased. Um, and the remains in a in, you know, quite key keys in a sort of in a dignified manner. So one of the mantras of DVI is always respect for the dead and bereaved. That's hugely important. So whatever happens in terms of recovery and identification is all done with that sort of key principle, um, overlaying everything that we do. Um, and, and and in very simple terms you know you look at the person or the individuals involved in the incident before death so the anti-mortem data so you understand what that person was like prior to death you know what they were wearing um any marks scars tattoos you get their sort of forensic history in terms of fingerprints uh, odontology so their dental records their dna potentially you have all this information for their anti-mortem data and you compare that to the um, the postmortem data, so the data you've mm-hmm. recovered after death, normally during the post-mortem process, mm-hmm. um, and then you bring the two together by to make an identification um, using, generally, say, DNA, odontology, or fingerprints.
0: So, uh, so um, we obviously um, the probably the best known example of where DVI specialists were used for, you know, many years really to sort it all, try and sort it all out it was the. Boxing Day was it two thousand and two the tsunami I
1: uh, two thousand and four I think it was two thousand and four right
0: so so obviously in that scenario it's very clear um, you know what the what the requirements would be I suppose but um, would 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 your people also be used in mass casualties uh, scenarios as a result of terrorist incidents for example
1: yeah hundred percent so anything involved with a mass casualty event so it doesn't matter what the event is. So it can be, um, you know, terrorism, natural disasters, hostile acts, um, you know, Hillsborough disorder, overcrowding type offences, health and safety issues. So health related incidents, industrial accidents, that sort of thing, it can be any of those. Um, Wherever you've got a large number of deceased, or, you know, as I say, burned or commingled remains that need to be identified, where identification is an issue. You know right. and, and I always say to people to SIOs when I, when I used to present on the courses, um, you know, just speak to a sim, speak to a senior identification manager, explain the, the situation that you're in, and they will make the determinations to whether a DVI process is necessary. I always erred on the side of undertake a DVI process, it does take a little bit longer, it is a little bit more complicated, uh, but actually, that part of the investigation is taken over completely by the sim and the DVI practitioner. So, you as an SIO. Wouldn't need to be too concerned about that because that'll be done for you. Um, the only consequence for for a force perspective is it is obviously going to be involve some additional resources to be put into the investigation.
0: So if you if we sort of like imagine a hypothetical scenario, okay, so a, a British Airways um, passenger plane uh, comes down as a result of a um, you know a, uh, a mechanical failure, so it's not. A terrorist incident. It's a yeah. it's a, it's crashed and it's crashed into some mountains in I don't know Spain or somewhere like that on the route to you know a holiday destination or whatever. Um, just talk me through what that response would look like from a DVI point of view.
1: Okay, so the first thing to understand is is the incident what we call an open or a closed incident. So an open incident will be where the number and details of the deceased may not be known at the time. So with what you've just described there, a, a plane crash, you'd have a manifest, you'd have maybe 200, 300 passengers on board, whatever the number might be, plus crew. It's potentially going to be called a, a closed incident because we can understand roughly the provisional number of deceased and who they might be. So that'd be a closed incident. If you sort of translate that into something like Lockerbie, where the plane came down into a sort of open area, Village of Lockerbie, and then killed people on the ground. Also, you know there you've got a combination of a a sort of manifest with identified people on board the plane, plus an element of an open incident where you you've obviously uh, killed members of the public on the ground who you wouldn't know who they were. So open incidents tend to take longer to resolve because you've got more missing persons to identify. You've got more deceased to identify who you wouldn't know who they are to start with. So um, there's sort of two types of incidents, open and closed, and then the hybrid, as I've described. So in a straightforward plane crash, if you describe there, in, into into sort of isolated mountains in Spain, you know, that's pretty much a a closed incident, although you can never accept that the manifest, manifest will be 100%. Um, accurate and you would always need to go through an identification process but what it gives you is a starting point because you'll have details, passport numbers of all those individuals on the plane. So with an international incident as you described, UK uh, policing would only really get involved if there there were British nationals on that plane Um, so if the British nationals on the plane, the foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the FCDO as they are now, the old FCO but the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office would speak to UK DVI, who's the national body who coordinated DVI activities across all the police forces in the in the in the UK, and they would um, make a determination with UK DVI as to whether we needed to send resources overseas. Um, and that would consist of a number of things. So it, it, it all depends on the internet, it all depends on the um the host country. So Spain would have to agree to that process. There will be a conversation at ministerial level, uh political level as to whether we were gonna they were gonna allow um British resources to go and support the activity in Spain. My experience of that is it used to happen quite frequently, and certainly look at Thailand, you mentioned that. Um, you know, we we certainly sent quite a number of staff over there for months on end um so it was, it was more common these days i think it's less likely we might send someone like a sim or we might send forensic pathologists or other ologists and specialists to support the identification process but i'm not aware of any huge resource shift to um overseas uh, abroad for a dvi incident in recent years but um yeah, that's that's effectively how how it would work. So um if I it probably if I describe a UK so, based
0: Yeah, so let's let's imagine um let's imagine that you've been uh sorry, I didn't want to cut you off there, but um uh you've been given you've been given the green light. Okay. You've been given the green light to go to that country um and you know support the local uh recovery effort with local law enforcement or whatever. Um what are the kind of key things that um w- w- in an ideal world you would be wanting
1: to happen. Yeah. Um, okay, so so the first thing that you would need to do and and, and bear in mind DVI is a an, an interpol process. So the whole DVI principle exists in in you know many, many countries across the whole of the world actually and they all follow the same principles. So that's that's what fortunate. So when you talk about Spain, um you know clearly they would adopt UK Standards which are interpol standards, so we'll all be working to similar sort of um, benchmarks in terms of coronial decision making. So, the first thing you need to do, of course, is, is secure the scene like anything really. The scene is secured, and that could be over in the you know, could over kilometers, miles. Uh, with a plane crash, in particular, you're going to get sort of detritus and, and debris falling from the plane. You've got to make sure you make the scene large enough to be able to capture all of the potential human remains that may have fallen from the sky so you look at something like mh-17 uh, which was shot down over ukraine um you know 33,000 feet the aircraft was shot at and exploded and then of course that debris then falls over a a, a huge area so it's about securing the scene to such an extent where you can be confident that you have captured most of the debris for the purpose of the investigation because that's what it's all about it's an investigative process initially in terms of the air accident investigation branch who will start to put in places' and the Spanish version of that who will start to put in place their procedures to be able to understand what brought that plane down so, why so did just
0: so just on that one from a from a governance point of view I suppose then uh, who is sort of the lead agency in that is that the air accident investigation people or is it the local jurisdiction sort of law enforcement or who who actually is Who's in charge, I suppose, is what I'm asking.
1: Yeah, it's often a debate, actually. Um, and, and in terms of overseas jurisdiction, it would be very different. But in terms of if it's a UK plane crash, clearly um, counterterrorism will be interested if it was an explosion. Um, it's very hard to determine in those first hours, was it an explosion or was it a mechanical failure that caused an explosion? So there is often a, a sort of joint investigation at the very outset with the air accident investigation branch and counterterrorism, um, police in terms of understanding what brought the pain down, because air accident investigation branch have a very important process, uh, a very important objective in that they are there to prevent the next crash, the next plane coming down. So if it was mechanical, what they want to do is avoid the next plane coming down the next day or the same day, um, if, if that can be avoided, clearly. So, counterterrorism kind of terrorism police will get involved because they need to start to understand, is this the first of, of several attacks? Is this a one-off? So, those early stages, there is always a bit of a, a shared governance approach in terms of the investigation, but very quickly it will become obvious, I think, which of the agencies is going to take the lead. Um, but, I say, it all depends on the circumstances of the individual incident to, about who takes ownership. Okay, And overseas, of course, that's that's going to be a very similar process. It depends on, on the different jurisdictions involved. But in terms of recovery, in terms of my world, the, the identification process, um, even if it's a counterterrorism uh, deployment, then the, the principle of DVR remains the same. You know, we would always work with the forensic management teams on CT. Um, they would clearly take privacy in terms of forensic recovery um, of, of anything that's taken away from the scene. Um, so we work very, very closely with the, those teams throughout any any recovery process. It's not about, you know, one particular element of the process taking, only, taking um, over. It's about working together to make sure that we work on behalf of the families, clearly very, very important, on behalf of the coroner, and also to be able to conduct the investigation in a forensic manner for either air accident at the investigation branch or, or CT. So in some ways, it's it's sort of, quite a fluid process as it progresses from those early stages and then it'll yeah. become very clear as to which agency holds yeah. primacy. And, uh, and there's the first, a, there's also, sorry, go on. I, I was gonna say so the first things that you need to do if I turned up on a scene of a plane crash, the first things you need to start to think about is the, the recovery process. So you know in, in particular, it's important for families to understand that their loved ones have been treated um, and recovered as quickly as they possibly can. You know, we've got to do that in, a say, in a forensic manner. But it's really important to the families that they understand that their loved ones weren't left out on a mountainside or, you know, in a shopping mall or wherever it might be, for uh, inordinate periods of time. And and the family liaison aspect of of DVI is absolutely critical. You know, they do a fantastic job in terms of working with the families to explain what the process might be, why it might take a little bit longer, explain everything that we can in terms of how the process would work, because, you know, we, we can't make things better for the families. We can only make mm. it worse. Mm. Um, So we've got to make sure that we get it right first time. And um that That's, process needs to be explained fully. And at some
0: point, I mean, it's massively complex. I suppose anybody listening to this is start beginning to get a... A really an understanding of just how unbelievably complex this is because there's obviously a major operation running back in the uk uh, isn't there so you things like casualty bureau for example Um, so at some point i'm going to speak to someone who's got many years experience of working in casualty bureau so casualty bureaus for the people who don't understand that that is a a hotline into a uh especially a group of specially trained call handlers who will be liaising with those at the scene in order to sort of um, gather that information from concerned members of the public who may be worried about a member of their family who's gone on holiday or they're they trying to find, they're trying to find, desperately trying to find out if, if their loved ones are involved in something. So presumably you would have quite a, a significant relationship with Cows Bureau, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah. So the same senior identification manager would um, agree to the opening of the casualty bureau, and would be would appoint a cas bureau manager then to run it. And and the purpose of the, of the CB, as you described there, the cas bureau, is just for that initial point of contact for receiving information from the public. You know, um, there w- there will be thousands of calls being made because people will want to know. Is my loved one involved? You know, if you think about it, what, what I'll do is the same when I will speak to the Casbury managers and apply a series of questions that they would ask the person calling in. So what makes you think that person was on that flight? Um, did you know that they boarded the flight? So when did you have last contact with them? Um, did they have a ticket for that particular flight? Um, have you spoken to them since? Have you tried to contact them? Which airport did they depart from? All those sort of questions are, are documented and asked of the person making the call and then what the casualty bureau do is grade those calls to say right this person he was definitely on the flight he's had no contact with his family since he took off um he sent a selfie as he boarded the plane his phone is now um not receiving or taking calls sorry not making or receiving calls so you'll be fairly confident that that individual was likely to be on that plane. And you'd allocate that person as a grade one, mm-hmm. um, so high priority, and then they will be allocated a family liaison officer to that family to start the process of gathering anti-mortem data. So what were they wearing? What did they have on their, uh, in terms of their possessions? Um, any marks, scars, tattoos? start to gather you know things from the property which may identify them so you know a toothbrush with their dna on maybe a glass of water they drank from at the side of the bed which may contain fingerprints a dental record so you start to build this picture of that individual who is missing and then of course you you recover the body from the scene uh, and any fragmented remains in uh, taken to the mortuary that is then examined by a pathologist or an odontologist um, any other specialist that needs to be involved and you compare the anti-mortem data with the post-mortem data, and then you make that positive identification and, and the uh, the individual then, the, the, the deceased, can then be reunited with their family so they can they can hold a burial or a funeral, whichever they wish to do. Um, but that's the important part of it. And, and ultimately that is how the CAS Bureau works. It's an investigative mm. process. It's hugely important in, the, in this, at this time. So I know, for example, on Westminster, you know, the terrorist attacks in Westminster, I think there were 3000 calls made in the first few hours So that would normally overwhelm a a call centre, you know, a contact centre in in the police, because that amount of calls coming in on top of normal business would be be sort of, um, the the staff wouldn't be able to cope. Mm. Uh, And of course, what that then creates is the individual, the family member who's trying to find details on their loved one, to panic, to start to look at other means of contacting the police, they might ring 999, they might cut. They might start bombarding the websites, and it's making the whole process for that family member even more challenging, even more upsetting. So the CAS Bureau just helps to give them a docking point to have someone at the end of the phone to talk to about the incident and to see that something is actually happening.
0: So, um oh, fascinating, I mean, I'm, I'm, I kind of knew a bit of this but um there's i've realized there's how many gaps that i had in my own knowledge and this is really interesting um so when you uh when you let's imagine that you as a senior identification officer you've been given the green light to go to that country and you're physically there uh, coordinating efforts to identify british nationals um do you would you bring with you other individuals uh as a team and if so what would their kind of roles and responsibilities be?
1: Yeah, um can I just can I give an example of a UK based
0: Yeah, yeah, of course, but yeah, of course. It of course. Might
1: help because the overseas is sort of slightly different. Okay, um, yeah, 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 of course. So in the UK based incident, um, so I, I was the SIM, the senior identification manager for the wall collapse in Nietzsche's in Birmingham in 2016. I don't know if you can recall that, but um, I do so, vaguely actually, yeah. Uh... Yeah, five five men sadly lost their lives. Um it's an, on- it's an ongoing court case, which I think is due October 22. So I won't go into any, any specific detail, but if I use that sort of basic principle as an example. So a wall collapse of, of five um, five men who were working at a, re- a recycling site where a wall collapsed, which was 26 blocks, each weighing 1.5 tonnes, oh, fell onto these individuals, plus about 200 to 400 tonnes of metal ingots, like baked bean-sized cans, metal ingots fell onto oh. these onto these unfortunate chaps and who were just doing their job, working away. Um obviously didn't expect anything like that to happen and it did they'd sort of caught completely by surprise.
0: And they were completely so, buried under all of this stuff, were they? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean oh you my can God.
1: imagine the of weight they're talking, you know, at least four or five hundred tons of weight that fell fell onto oh head. my God. Bloody awesome. Really tragic. And, and these were these were hard working. I mean, they were, they were um, dual nationals, so they were Spanish with either Gambian or Senegalese passports. Um, working men, you know, been in the UK for, for several months, most of them um, had families in the UK. Some had families overseas in Spain or so Gambia or Senegal. So, but they were working men and, and just, you know, had a tragic accident, which is which led to the loss of their life. But I got the call there to to be the sim, so I spoke to the coroner, spoke to the senior officers in force just to let them know what was going on. And the first thing you need to do, as I said, it's the same as anything, really. Secure the scene, that initial response. Can we save life? In this circumstance, it was obvious that was not going to be possible. Um, and, and you commence the, the process. The first thing that you need to consider is the recovery process. So this is how you are going to recover the, the deceased and any fragmented remains. Um, from the scene and that's just about bringing in a team of UK DVI trained officers so generally they're constables lots of sergeants in that in that um, um, who are trained also they have undertaken a five-day course at uh, the College of Policing course um, and they're trained in body recovery and they're trained in mortuary processes so they were deployed and we had a team there working under what we call a scene evidence recovery manager a CIRM so that's generally a supervisor with experienced pulser generally, uh, someone in our force, you know, the OSU, the operational support unit, um, who would be leading that recovery, working with other agencies, the fire service are brilliant, you know, they're always a real key partner in these events. And in this case, of course, lots of heavy lifting to be done. Um, So they were absolutely vital in terms of bringing their expertise to to the incident. And who would, Um, just
0: out of curiosity, in that scenario, when you've got hundreds of tonnes of of concrete blocks uh, on top of these people, um, who does the lifting? Is that external contractors? Is it the fire service?
1: Yeah, in in this case, the lifting was done by the fire service. So they had experience from Didcot, if you remember the steel collapse, Yes, did, that had happened several months earlier, so they had some really good experience of of this type of approach. It was sort of similar in terms of some of the activity that needed to be undertaken, which effectively was drilling into these concrete blocks. And then using a crane to to lift the the blocks away one by one and of course it's really important as i said before everything we've done is done forensically um so every these 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 uh steel ingots i've described say like a baked bean sized can of solid metal they were all removed by hand um generally by the fire service because what you need to make sure is that you know you've recovered every single part of everybody who's been lost in that tragic incident so it's really Mm. important that we can reassure families to say that you know when we do reconcile the body and return the body to the families that they that the body is as complete as it possibly can be so that's really important so you know we recover the stealing. it's by hand blocks were all removed by hand in a systematic way so that we did did not cause any further um disruption to any of the any of the scene or to the bodies and to make sure that they were treated with dignity and respect so i mean it's
0: season. uh i mean there's a couple of things there really firstly without going into all the gory details i imagine that must be an absolutely horrific horrible job for someone to have to do because god only knows what state the bodies are going to be in by the time you actually get to them um and secondly i suppose the psychological impact on the people who actually do that job is must be fairly significant, mustn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, DVI is not for everybody. It's absolutely, uh, I think, one of the most difficult jobs in policing. Um, some of the things that the officers deployed to a DVI and have to see, most police officers will never see in the whole service. You know, it's, and, and not only are you involved in this sort of recovery of the I say human remains fragmented human remains residual tissue um you know you've got to be sure that you are doing as much as you possibly can for the families and quite often that's over a protracted period of time so something like Grenfell I know the teams were deployed for months you know and that was a particularly harrowing incident in terms of the numbers of deceased and the types of environments the staff were working in so it's not for everyone I always tell the DVI courses you know if after you've done this course you don't feel this is for you please stay. Please stand up and say, it's not for me, and, and walk away. And, and there's no shame, absolutely no shame in doing that. And I encourage it, 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 because, you know, we don't want individuals who already at the very beginning of the um, training feel that they're going to struggle with the types of things that they are going to have to deal with, because it's, it's harrowing. Mm. Um, everyone who gets involved in DVI um, has occupational health checks on a regular basis before any deployment they are checked. Uh, we go through a, a formal questionnaire with them to make sure that they are in the right frame of mind. And it could be anything, you know, you could be going through a tricky divorce, you could have had stresses in your life which are impacting on your, your own mental well being. And the last thing you want to do is put somebody who's already got those issues into a scenario where they're gonna be seeing some of the most traumatic scenes that they're ever gonna experience in their police service
0: yeah god well i can't even imagine i mean i've seen some pretty horrific stuff over the years but i've I've never had, thank god never had to do anything like what you've just described there anyway um dvi stuff i've learned absolutely loads there um i mean i massively take my hat off to you I'll take my hat off to anybody who's done that job because it's uh, incredibly um incredibly important but yet at the same time incredibly sort of traumatic and everything so just just sort of if you don't mind sort of moving on with your career a little bit um, into sort of next jobs and things. So when I sort of first worked with you, um, uh, you were pretty much exclusively dealing with all of the covert authorities for the force around sort of surveillance and undercover policing and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, um, How how did you find that as a job did you enjoy that
1: yeah absolutely loved it um it is probably my most favorite posting of all the postings that i've had and i've had some good jobs in my career but you know three and a half years head of covert policing i absolutely loved it it was fantastic um not a world i've been massively engaged with before the posting uh, but certainly in three and a half years you learn loads you know and and The levels of threat and risk that you're managing within that scenario all those scenarios was Mm. was intense and I've never worked so hard in my life and and you know 12 hour days every day six days a week you know was was took its toll really and it it, it was hard work but I really enjoyed it and you know fair play to my wife who had to put up with a lot during that period and and the family because you know it's not a job you can walk away from and and just the just the just the Authorities alone was was very very demanding in terms
0: yeah. of time. Well, the I can remember uh, I can remember you looking as if you <laughs> don't take this the wrong way, but I can remember you looking as if you had the weight of the world on your shoulders sometimes doing that job, uh, and and hardly no bloody wonder really when you consider. And just for context, it's useful just to remind people um and ourselves as well that this was during the peak of that horrible period of m- many, many shootings and uh, gang-related incidents where Birmingham had been given, I think, the name as the gun crime capital of the UK around that
1: period of time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. We were going through a really tricky period. Um, but I, and I commend every officer who works on those in, in those roles. So whether it's the surveillance officers who were absolutely working back-to-back shifts, um, 24-7, seven days a week. The demands on those teams, you know, were prioritising the priorities because there were firearms being moved around the West Midlands, where there were shootings, there was some serious gang criminality going on at that time. And, you know, they're not the sort of jobs you can just put on the back burner. You needed to do something. And, you know, those guys worked absolutely tirelessly. Um, and then, you know, this the sort of, this COVID policing structure, really, at that time was the surveillance units, um, both static and mobile you had the undercover units themselves which were again extremely busy during that period with some long-term deployments and also um the the cheers so the 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 informants uh, to Mm. you and i um which i found really really interesting um just in terms of some of the operational stuff that we did. And I think people have the perception that Westminster or, or other or police forces as a general rule are quite risk averse, but I think we were so lawfully audacious in terms of some of the stuff that we did. Mm. Um, A lot of it, most cops in the force wouldn't even know was going on, wouldn't even yeah. realize what was going on, but the force yeah. had to take some, some risks in terms of deployments to protect the public. You know, there's no mm. other reason why they did it. It mm. was to pre- protect the public. It wasn't about, you know, Just doing it for the sake of it these were operations that needed to be done to save lives and Mm. and that's the bit that kept you awake at night and that's what i talk Mm. about the most enjoyable part of my career is because you knew that you were making a real difference you know you're employing some of those ucs undercover officers or chis into some of the activity that we did you just knew that you were saving lives. And um, I yeah. was one part of it. There was a multitude of people that sat around me, um, whether it was in the regional crime units or whether it was in the investigation side of business on the undercover side. There was lots of different people who worked absolutely, mm. you know, their socks off at that period to to get some good results and hopefully put a lid on on what was going on.
0: Yeah. And that was an interesting, and still is an interesting um, period of time for undercover policing because obviously we've had the revelations of, of um, you know uh, misconduct by long-term undercover officers uh, uh, from the Met as part of the SDS team that there's sort of well-publicised now and is now subject to a uh, very very um, damaging um, kind of legal review, isn't there? So, so to have to sort of try, I suppose, what I'm, what I'm getting to with that is to have to try and continue to um, deal with the very significant threat that policing, that the the communities were facing, and, you know, our responsibility to try and mitigate that, whilst at the same time having undercover policing in such a controversial situation um, was, I imagine, very, very challenging.
1: Yeah, so... Obviously, we've supported the undercover policing inquiry, the UCPR, which is ongoing. I think it's got several years yet before it's concluded. Um, But yeah, I mean, the authorizations themselves, you know, they're they're very detailed. But of course, you do have to give a bit of leeway to the undercover officer when they're deployed. Of course, you know, it's um, you you can't you can't write down everything that's going to happen because that's the whole purpose of the operation, isn't it? But um, you know, we work within a framework. I think everything we did in force was absolutely. Checked and double checks, we We're inspected every single year in terms of our undercover operations, um, and you're told there and then if things aren't how they should be, and you, and you rectify those. So, yeah, I, I think with the UCPI and the inquiry, which is ongoing, it's um, it'd be interesting where that where that ends up. I susp- I mean, I don't think you can have uk policing without a covert footprint without undercover officers being deployed i just think they they do an absolutely amazing job and you know put yourselves in their position of infiltrating organized crime groups over protected periods of time you know you need to be of a certain character to do that no question mm-hmm. they put themselves immense risk um so i take my hat off to them i think where we need to probably just learn lessons is the management of how they're deployed how we look after them when they are deployed um the parameters that we apply to what they do to make sure that we are protecting themselves um and i i think you know there might come a time when we move to judicial authorizations as opposed to internal force authorizations but you know time will tell um but i i really really sincerely hope they don't say that you know
0: Throw the baby out of the yeah. bathwater.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be the wrong thing to do. I really do. I think you know, as again, I go back to some of the things that we did here in force and you know across the region. And you know, we they do some fantastic work and they save lives. They undoubtedly mm. and and they might not save life directly, but they provide information and intelligence which will lead to the next job, which will save lives. And it's mm. it's absolutely continuous. So uh, again, commend everything they do. Just absolutely fantastic work.
0: So so you, um, around that, so I, I left um, the Westminster in 2019 um, where our sort of paths, um, you know, we uh, separated, I suppose, uh, and you carried on. You successfully got promoted to Chief Superintendent. Uh, well done, you. And, uh, and then I believe you finished up before you retired uh, as Head of Force Operations. So that's all the... Um, Uh, Dogs, uh, firearms, um, operation support unit, all of that, helicopters, all that kind of stuff. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so when when I left COVID policing in 2017, I actually went to CT, so I was was on CT from November 16 to the end of 17, so the period of the, the five terrorist attacks in the UK. So it was a great time to be on CT. Um, I was head of intelligence there. So, again, just just a really interesting experience. I know your, your background is CT, isn't mm. it? That was my first foray into that world. And, yeah. um, again, hugely enjoying a, a, a completely different scenario to what I was doing from the COVID world, in a way. Mm. Because you do my, – my, my thoughts on CTs. I felt like you were on the – I felt like a, a different place. You know, I'm a Westminster mm. officer, Westminster County Terrorism Unit. You did yeah. feel a little bit detached from the force. I don't know if you found that. Uh, yeah, well, I,
0: I've got a bit of a love-hit relationship with um, CT Policing now in the sense that I spent a long time there in CT Policing, uh, special special branches it was in those days um, when I was in London. Then I went back there for a few years when I was a DI. Um, I do think, um, and I've said this before in other podcasts, I don't know what you're thinking, you know, I, I'll respect what everybody, anybody thinks about this, I do think that, uh, that at a time when mainstream policing has been unbelievably squeezed in terms of resources, CT, the CT network could have helped out a bit more, I think, particularly around serious and organised crime. Um, I do think they've been far too protective of their resources. Um, and if you actually look at the damage caused by serious and organized crime gun crime knife crime and all of that stuff if you just you know i don't want to use the word body count but i'll just use it haven't I? but if you look at the number of people who die as a result of gun and knife crime compared to the number who who die as a result of terrorism it's there's no comparison is there
1: I think think one of the big differences, though, um, is you look at what the government invests into counterterrorism policing compared to serious and organised crime. And, you know, it's interesting that it's unlikely that a serious and organised crime uh, explosion, uh, and I mean that in terms of excess criminality, would bring a government down, but certainly multiple terrorist attacks may do. And and I wonder, you know, the funding that goes into counterterrorism absolutely dwarfs that that goes into serious and organised. And you know, there clearly is a a government motivation for that. I think, you know, um, I say. Not yeah. many serious and organised crime jobs are going to bring down a government, but a, a terrorist incident might do. Yeah. So I think I think that sometimes plays a part, um, hence the the sort of balance of resources. I think they're getting better at it. Certainly I've seen a little bit more leeway before I left, you know, the um, CTs were, were putting some of their staff into some of the homicides, into West Mids, and, you know, supporting some of those longer-term investigations. So they they were doing a bit of it, but I, I do understand, you know, they have got this balance of the sort of intelligence-gathering elements to it, but it's the mm. pursue element, I suppose, isn't you talking about? Yeah,
0: I mean, I mean, don't get themselves. me wrong, I, I, I get it, I get it that in the sense that if you get yourself tied up with a complex serious and organised crime investigation and you start making arrests and gathering evidence and putting jobs together on homes and all of that kind of stuff. You can't just drop those jobs and walk away from them and go back to, um, you know, CTU. Things start bubbling up in the CT world. um, You know, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? So I, I get it that they're quite protective of their resources, but I just don't think... I look at some of the jobs that are coming to court laterally, or in the media, and, and I just think a lot of these people are arguably um, emotionally disturbed individuals who probably should have, should and could have been dealt with in a different way rather yeah. than this kind of very blunt instrument called let's do a, a terrorism act investigation on them, you know?
1: Yeah, no, you're probably right, I think. Um, I think we're getting better at it. We are we are starting to to, to understand that difference now. And certainly so when I was there, we had a, a a piece of work that was looking at the links between organized crime and terrorism to understand is it there, you know, is it as explicit as we, we might think and is there a relationship between the two? Um that was certainly a piece of work that we were undertaking. I won't go into the details of what mm-hmm. we found, but yeah, yeah it was yeah. a piece of work that was ongoing. Yeah, brilliant. Um, just come to the time just gonna just
0: want to sort of wind up um you want to talk on, about the
1: head of force operations bit you may not me i never answered it so just
0: well yeah just for just very quickly i'm, I'm, I'm just want to come on to what you think is going on in uk policing at the moment but yeah before we do that um just sort of explain what that job whether you know because you were you were doing a load of stuff around um covid as well weren't you the police response to the covid pandemic
1: yeah, so I was the silver for Westminster Police on on the COVID pandemic. Really interesting. Again, no template to manage one of these things. It was just um, a role which I undertook. Um, fantastic, yeah, loads working multi-agency partners across the whole of the, the sort of force area and beyond. Um, very interesting, very interesting how um, we managed it as a force. I think we made mistakes along the way. We learned a lot of lessons, but I think the government, um, the information coming from the government was... You know, changing by the hour, literally. So you were responding and reacting to, you know, predictions or uh, analysis that came from central government, and having to change your whole um, approach um, on on a regular basis. Whether it was about law, whether it was about the enforcement of, of COVID regulations, or whether it was about forecasts of numbers of deceased that were going to occur in the community. So it felt like you were you were constantly spinning multiple plates um, in order to. To, to provide some comfort and reassurance to the public, but uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah, fantastic. Again, really, really busy. in the And world.
0: obviously the impact uh, from a resourcing point of view, you know, uh, when you've got large numbers of officers potentially off with COVID or self-isolating or looking after children or all of that, I would imagine. All, all I'll say is, thank God I wasn't there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was days when I definitely saw that. I mean, the resourcing challenges were huge, like you say. You know, we were sort of, planning for absolute armageddon in a way where you sort of had you know 10 20 percent of the force on duty at any one time um you know the numbers were that low what could we stop doing if you like was the question that we we're asking ourselves so what are the things that weren't deemed essential and every every area of policing had to give something because we, there were times when we were very short sure in terms mm. of resources but i think you know again fair play to the officers who stood up during that period. Um, worked 12 hour shifts when necessary just went above and beyond really what would normally be expected and they did that you know with the, with the public in mind so no fantastic I think and, and I think we can sort of hold our heads up high at the end of all that that we actually we did a good job I say at the end of all that are we there I'm not sure
0: yeah it's a tricky one which sort of segues quite nicely into my sort of final question or sort of just your I'd really welcome your thoughts really so um so I've obviously written this book, Tanger Juliet Foxtrot, all about what I think is, you know, been somewhat the
1: Hold on, mate, stand by. Just pause on that. Just chuck the dogs out. <laughs> right, start that little segue right. again.
0: <laughs> That's all right, yeah. No, no. Um, yeah, so obviously as you know, I've I've written this book, um, Juliet Foxtrot all about it. the difficulties that British policing now seems to find itself in, uh, for all sorts of reasons and, and I described that process is something that didn't happen overnight it took uh, quite a long time to happen through a number of different you know through the Labour government back in you know 20 odd years ago and uh, through you know obviously the last rather unhappy period of time since 2010. Where do you see UK policing? Do you think things are in a really dreadful state or do you, are you quite sort of optimistic about things? Where's your head with all of that?
1: Yeah um, I'm quite fortunate about what my son's just joined the job. So he's been in for two years now, approaching two years. So I can see both sides. My wife was a PC, a DC um, and retired 12, 18 months ago as well. So I always felt that I had, um, you know, I, I certainly had an opinion and a view from, from constables around me, which was quite useful as a senior officer because, you know, we don't have all the answers, do we? And we certainly, there's a lot to be learned from, I think, from the frontline unquestionably. And I think we need to listen more actually to to our frontline staff to make things better. But I'm... I, don't, I didn't want to be one of these cops who left the police service and then looked back, and, and which was very critical of them, everything that's gone before me. And I am trying to be very optimistic about the future. Um, I think that we are going through a phase of, of significant recruitment uh, at the moment. I think the biggest difference in that, though, Ian, is you know, how quickly officers are looking to leave the organisation. It's not seen as that long-term career anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear that quite frequently. You know whether when i was on um local command as a chief sucked sort of, you know you hear new starters and i sit down with them all and they'll all tell me why they joined and we're very excited to be there but they often finish the conversation with i'll give it four or five years and see where i see where it see where it goes and and they didn't see it as a long-term career not everybody not everybody said that but a lot of people did but i just think that's culturally where we are as a society at the moment. You know people aren't going to commit to working 30 40 years it seems a long long time doesn't it when you're sort of mm. 19 20 and yeah. I think you will work in one agency for, for, for 40 years mm. and whereas when we joined I think it was the norm wasn't it you know yeah. I thought of yeah. nothing else but working for 30 years as a cop and look forward to it. Mm-hmm. So I think I think we we need to in some way start to work on how we can retain some of our staff that we're investing lots of money in terms of training in terms of experience. Um, experiences they receive while they're in the early stage of their career. Mm. Um, You know, I've heard some stories where people get put into roles they don't really want to be and and they then vote with their feet. You know, Mm. they just walk out. They say, I've had enough, put the notice Mm. in the leave. And, you know, that's what we've got to definitely avoid. And and Mm. it's going to take some thinking because it's not easy. We're in a period of high demand as always, you know, so we're trying to make the best use of the resources we have. And we're balancing that with trying to retain staff in roles which they find interesting and rewarding. And you know, I I don't want to completely write off the young young cops and say yeah. it's not going to happen. But I, I suppose I,
0: really I cool. suppose my biggest fear, Lee, is that um uh, the deep experience and skills and knowledge that are required to investigate many of the types of things that you've been talking about in this conversation are going to be diluted if we're having people walking out of the organisation after only a few years. And so who's going to investigate the homicides? Who's going to be, you know, working on covert policing and the counter-terrorism world and serious and organised crime? Uh, That's my fear, I suppose. I think you'll always be able to get a cohort of people who can put on a uniform, understand the the law and their responsibilities and go and patrol the streets and respond to emergencies. Um, You know, response cops have always kind of generally being quite young in service um but it's my fear is that it's going to be those deep sort of more technical skills that are going to suffer potentially
1: yeah and, and i think we should harness that really because these are the interesting some of the more interesting roles i think in policing so how do we encourage people to go into there and stay into those roles i know you know some forces are are, are using direct recruitment into crds aren't they Detec- mm. detective academies and, and we're one of those and i think there's a place for that because some people have that mindset some people enjoy that line of work so let's bring them in to do that specific role um it doesn't always work, does it? Direct recruitment mm-hmm. into those areas because you miss a whole load of other experiences that may well have shaped you into a better all-round officer. But mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's a bit of an old-fashioned view now. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly saw people who who worked with me who had an aptitude for a certain type of policing, and why wouldn't you put them in that role? And why wouldn't you keep them there? You yeah. know, I was never a big fan of tenure. I understand yeah. why you need a rotation of staffing and out certain roles, but you know, you do lose a hell of a lot of experience when you tenure someone out of a particular function. Yeah. As long as you've got robust management and governance processes in place, I don't think you need a tenure policy that says you do five years and then you're off. Yeah. You know, I was never a big fan of that. No, um, I agree. Plans, that's difficult.
0: I agree. So um so what's next then? Obviously you retired what, three
1: months ago? yeah so i don't like the word retired it makes me feel old uh-huh. I love policing. yeah i left policing. policing yeah yeah so yeah i'm only 50 so I'm, I'm i'm looking for work now i'm sort of just starting to dip my toe in the water just to see what's out there people keep saying oh you've got loads of skills you know transferable skills There'll I mean, be loads of jobs that will come along so i'm hoping that'll be the case but just trying mm. to do the background, do the basics really. So I'll make myself a good candidate for whatever role it might be. But no, no firm lines. I wouldn't mind doing some work with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. I really enjoy mm. my time working with them. So I'd like to do a bit of that maybe. Um, i tell you what I miss it. I miss the sort of, the, the people definitely, you know, you mm. enjoy that day-to-day relationship mm. you have with people. But I yeah. do miss the crisis stuff. I just miss the sort of, the fast pace of being a firearms commander or silver commander in public order or the covert yeah. bit that I've spoken about. I really miss that, dynamic critical incident management stuff um so something which gives me that'd be great but I'm not sure I'm going to find it outside of policing to be honest but we'll see
0: yeah it's a really tricky it's a really interesting one and certainly you know I I talked about this in earlier podcasts that I certainly went through some sort of emotional highs and lows when I left you know there's that initial kind of euphoria of um you know being free you know not having to Worry about dropping in the shit, for want of a better word, you know, like because you're always thinking, oh God, have I signed something off that's going to come back and haunt me? Um, You know, you know, there's all sorts of jobs. It's a very can be a very risky job in this day and age, can't it? But um, but yeah, I mean, my advice to you would just be don't be in too much of a rush to jump at the very first thing that presents itself to you. And you know what? You might do one or two things that. you know, don't work out the way you want them to, but that's fine. You know, there's nobody's yeah. holding a kind of gun to your head. You know, yeah. so uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, honestly, I'm, so I'm, I'm quite relaxed about it. Really, say so three months, two of those months before Christmas, the last month now is is just been sort of trying to get myself sorted. So yeah, we'll see where we end up.
0: Brilliant. Well, listen, my friend, it's been an absolute pleasure um, chatting to you. You, you, you know, you, you've had an amazing career. And I really, you know, congratulate you for a fantastic career in policing, you know, a thank you on behalf of all the people who, you know, who you and your colleagues have arguably saved many, many lives over the years, done all sorts of pretty unpleasant things that you deserve great credit for. So well done and uh, and the very best of luck for the future, whatever it is you decide to do.
1: Thanks, Ian. Really appreciate the opportunity today. Thanks very much, Paul.
0: Brilliant. Okay, you take care. All the best. Bye.
1: Bye bye. He was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat.
0: But now we never see him. It really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're
1: the safest street in town. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.